Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast, your digital download of the best and most innovative in the trade union world at this present moment in time with me, Simon Sapper. And me, Becky Wright. And in this episode, our featured guest is Chi Onwura, the shadow minister with responsibility for industrial strategy. That was a good chat, wasn't it, Becky? It was a really good chat, and it was really nice to be able to talk to her about industrial strategy uh, and not touch the B word at all. But before uh, coming to Chi, things have been quite busy in the news over over this last week. And, well, and something... let me stop you here there, Simon, by telling you, obviously, we all want to discuss the new Star Wars trailer that got dropped and Rise of Skywalker. Well, I, I was kind of leading towards Game of Thrones myself. Oh, oh, honestly, I should like Game of Thrones. It has everything that I usually like about TV and stories. I just can't get into it. Look, I must be the only person who... No, you're not. I've, watch- I've never watched Game of Thrones, but actually really what we need to talk about is Fleabag, is, isn't it? Oh, I love Fleabag so much. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Listeners, uh, we have now decided the offshoot of the Unions 21 podcast where we will be talking about all the television that Simon and I like. <laughs> but <in terms laughs> Nothing to do with unions. Sorry, guys. Seriously. We've changed the programme. Um, the thing... There's something that really grabbed my attention, and I wasn't expecting this at all. It's an article by someone who you may not have heard of, Kelly Tolhurst. Kelly Tolhurst is an MP. She's a minister, the junior ministers at BIS, I guess. And she's written a thing in Politics Home, which basically says we've got world-class labour market, world-class workforce, and we're going to keep it that way. And uh, I read it, and I just thought, what planet is she on? I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, Ms. Tolhurst. I'm sure you, you wrote those words sincerely. But 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 you think we have a world-class labour market because everyone's going to get a pay slip and we're going to have clarity on salary sacrifice? I don't know where to start on that one. But, I mean, firstly, you're right. We had I had to Google. I mean, I'm sure she'd have to Google me. So it's not, you know, like no, no um, nothing against that or anything. But I, I read it and I thought this is so interesting when all of the evidence around a world-class economy and a world-class labour system has some form of collective voice like usually a strong form of collective voice collective bargaining within it isn't there's no mention of that you know brackets unsurprisingly closed brackets so the idea of saying we're world-class on workers rights is just erroneous it's like it's not right I don't you can't have world-class workers' rights unless you have a clear, embedded notion of collective worker voice. And that was the whole problem with the government's industrial strategy. Well, one of the problems. Oh, which we'll be talking about later well, on with Chi. Which we'll be talking about later on with Chi. So which is why the, you know, the Kelly Tolhurst article really, really jumped out, 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 yeah. at, out at me. And if, if you do not think that actually collective worker voice has any role to play or it's not important, which is the inevitable consequence of the government's industrial strategy and and the article by, by, by the minister, Where is where's the kind of common ground to build an, a really effective industrial strategy? Because, you know, you're talking, you're, you're, you're talking chalk and cheese here. I, I, honestly, I, I was astounded when I read that article this morning. I just, I really... I wondered whether we've truly gone through the fact world. I mean, you know, I often joke that I don't need facts to make an assertion because that is, that's how most of my family operate when we are around the dinner table 
talking about various things to do with the world like facts make very little headway in our discussions and I joke about that but I also think facts are important if we're to start thinking about some of the challenges we we have to be very honest about where we're at there's there's two things right we're going to go through one of the most fundamental shifts in the labour market and in the world of work as we go through this new industrial revolution it's going to upheaval the world of work and our society as a whole right we're going to go through that on top of going through that which other nations across the developed world are going through and also the developing world and the global south you've got this massive thing of brexit which is going to require a large chunk of investment and yet there is no room it seems to talk about how we're going to do all of this together and what that might look like it just astounds me it it just really astounds me so if uh, anybody from Kelly Tolhurst's office is listening which I mean you know you never know you never Fair know. Play. Yeah, if if uh, you are, you've made a good choice, that's for sure. Uh, I'll like email us, and I'll give you a list of books. Is all I'm saying. Well, email us, and we'll have a chat about about actually what what evidence underpins this kind of policy position, because I think that's that's a really germane, relevant kind of question. Yeah, uh, well, anyway, uh, <laughs> Amazon. Amazon. Amazon next next on the list. Yeah. Workers at Amazon's German fulfillment centres are on strike. Yeah, members of Verdi are taking strike action in Amazon over working conditions. Uh, And so I read that. That was really interesting. And you read an article in The Observer this week, didn't you, Simon, about... Yeah, there's a big splash on the business pages, actually on the consumer pages of The Observer over the the weekend. One of these stories that bubbles up now and again about the (laughs) terms and conditions of Amazon delivery drivers, which essentially says they have a dog's life. And there are high levels of stress, high levels of dropout, uh, high levels of uh, of industrial accidents. In between the article, you could kind of you could see that maybe there was a case for even saying they're not actually paid the national minimum wage, which is an interesting question about about enforcement and, and compliance which is a whole other issue especially given the comments by David Metcalf director of uh, labor market enforcement that he made in the papers this week about saying that the HMRC essentially were not necessarily going for the right targets when it comes to yeah compliance. yeah that was really uh, interesting going for the low-hanging fruit with retail well, and not actually going for the kind of harder targets it would have a big impact and, and that's something that we'll pick up with with David when we speak to him in a, a podcast that's later in this series. But to go back to our Amazon, I suppose it begs the question of how do we establish collective voice in a multinational, algorithm-driven company? Yeah, and it's a, you know, it's a real challenge. You know, Germany has got a, a good history of sectoral bargaining and a good history of that that kind of arrangement of sort of social dialogue arrangement. And yet, even though German unions are struggling, even Verdi is struggling to organise and to get agreements at Amazon. And, you know, we were, Simon and I were talking about it beforehand, and we both kind of went, oh, Nautilus. Is Nautilus the answer to this? Well, of course, Nautilus have got a global deal with Shell. And Nautilus International, to give them their full, full name, is is coordinating and leading negotiations on behalf of Shell's employees across the whole world. And Shell says, we recognise that Nautilus is the lead voice on this. Yeah, but interestingly, because Nautilus 
is a union, an international union in its very, in its kind of deliberate sense, that it is the merger between a Dutch union and a British union and now a Swiss union and potentially other nations because they recognise the fact that their industry is a global industry which needs global solutions to bargaining. And you sort of wonder whether this is potentially going to be the way that Amazon is dealt with, that it's more on an international level with unions kind of forming, I don't know, either their own federation, on international federation on this, or actually just being one union that kind of is dedicated to organising this this particular employer. I've, you know, within that, I don't think we've got the answers to it all. But it is really interesting to think of when capital is global, what's our response to that? And of course, we recognise the efforts that that a number of national trade union centres and international confederations as well have already taken to try and unionise and organise in in Amazon. But they are so avowedly, I mean, they seem so avowedly anti-collective voice or or anti-union, certainly. And they are so driven, it would seem, by algorithms that actually it's a, you know, it's a, it's a difficult difficult beast to tame that's for sure it just keeps making me think is how do you negotiate with an algorithm uh that's a question we'd have to ask our swedish friends answers on a postcard please listeners anybody know how we can uh, negotiate with an algorithm seriously listeners if, if, if you've got experience about dealing with one of these multinational algorithm-driven uh, giants, if you like, commercial giants. We'd love to hear your views, your experiences, what works, what doesn't work. You can email us at info at unions21.org.uk. Please join us. Please join the discussion. Closer to home, there's a company that's kind of not living up to its name, isn't it? The Welcome Foundation is not being very welcoming to um, the notion of four-day working weeks for no loss of pay. Well, Which is a, it's a this is a curious story. Yes, it's a curious story. I really like the Welcome Building. It's got a really good cafe. I heartily recommend it for anybody visiting London. It's well, they really do great nice work. The Welcome Foundation is really, really, really good work. Great work. They fund some really good research. So they made this big splash about how they were going to start going on to a four day week, and everybody was like, "Oh, that's great, brilliant!" You know this. This, if this really large research body, which is like the second after the Gates Foundation, I think, for like funding science, if they can do it, that will be a, a big step forward in talking about the four-day working week, which the TUC has policy for. And now they've come back and said it was just too hard and too they're not going to do yeah. it anymore. I don't even think they did the trial for it because they no. found... And, and, and I was like reading about this thinking... I don't know which unions are recognised at the Wellcome Trust, if at all. So any unions, if you can, you know, give me the heads up on that one, that would be brilliant. Because it would be really interesting to see what actual negotiations and discussions with the workforce Wellcome had in order to make this decision about not doing the trial. Because it seemed to me that, that a lot of the things they were talking about could be overcome by negotiations just stuff like the systems in place could be maybe negotiated, thinking about people's work patterns. There's a lot of different ways in which you can say a four-day working week, which sometimes isn't just about working four days, if that makes sense. No, it's, a, it's about a more flexible, tailored a, approach. I mean, the CPI were you know, quoted rather sniffly as, as saying, well, a rigid approach feels like a step in the wrong direction assuming that actually 
welcome were contemplating a rigid fixed four-day yeah, working week with fixed hours each day whereas actually that kind of it's all, this is the point and you're you're absolutely right becky why there was not a discussion through collective bargaining consultation some sort of dialogue to say here's what we're thinking about doing how's it going to work you know it's kind of I don't yeah, know. maybe it's, they should work that all out before they made a big splash about or, it as well. Or, or, or maybe, maybe they did, and actually that was part of the process that's not been made visible. Which is why, as Becky says, listeners, if you work for the Welcome Foundation, if you're a union that's organising, got members of the Welcome Foundation, we'd really like to, to get the inside track on this for sure. Yeah. So on to well, our featured speaker or featured guest today. Yes, indeed, Chi Onwura, Minister of State with responsibility for industry. Shadow. Shadow, oh, yeah, shadow, shadow minister of state, in, in, indeed. Really interesting set of views, especially given the Kelly Tolhurst counterpoint. Uh, and we took time out from a frenetic atmosphere at Westminster to have a chat with her. Uh, well, listeners, we have uh, with us today, Becky and I are very privileged to be in the company of Sheik Onwura. <laughs> so thank Hello. you very much. Thank you very much, Sheik. <laughs> That's me. But, the privilege is all mine. <laughs> well, and we're off to a good start. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, on, I like the fact that both Sarah and I have now got to this point where we're expecting the other one to do the introductions, <laughs> especially after only a couple of cups of tea. But so um, the reason that we wanted to speak to Chi was because she is the shadow minister for industrial uh, strategy. I'm really intrigued by industrial strategy because I keep thinking that we haven't really done much of it in the UK in comparison to the rest of our European colleagues. And, and listeners may remember that there was a tome that was published a few years ago now it feels like where the government said this is our industrial it was strategy last year. It was it was like um, hundreds of pages and lots of very big glossy photos and yeah. almost no content and yeah. so, <laughs> well funny no that's content. where i was gonna go with certainly it. no content about collective voice and about unions and all unions the rest were not mentioned and they weren't yeah, just an oversight it. Yeah, <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> i actually did a word search <laughs> I actually kind of went and thought, I haven't really read anything. What is there anything on it? And it, it was, I think the thing that struck me was that there was hardly anything around, yeah, collective voice or anything about social dialogue or anything about unions. There was very little said about the differences across the labour market and across the economy. It seemed to focus an awful lot on kind of high tech type things and there was like a hidden assumption that if you're high skilled you'll be that's how that's the pathway to getting a better job and I was like okay really is this kind of where we're, we're at now so I've been really intrigued about where everybody's going with industrial strategy sort of since then and, and she you've got the portfolio for labour so it'd be really interesting to hear a little bit about like your vision for industrial strategy and what you kind of think about that and what's of interest to you well, that's fantastic. And I, you know, it's something I could talk about for hours. I'll try not to. But I do just want to say that you're absolutely right about the UK not doing sort of industrial strategy. I mean, it was a term that really, um, you know, fell out of favour. And you know, even under under Labour, under the Labour last Labour government was would not talk about industrial strategy until Peter Mandelson sort of got got converted to it in the last sort of couple of years. And the, the Conservatives absolutely, you know, Sajid Javid, the last uh, Secretary of State for Business. You know, would not mention the words industrial and strategy in the same sentence. He absolutely refused to, because for those who believe.
believe like that the free market delivers everything then then industrial strategy is basically you know anathema but we who understand that the free market if it went when when it does exist has many faults with it we we, I see industrial strategy, and actually we, we pair industrial strategy with science and innovation, so my, that's my sort of mm. complete portfolio. I see industrial strategy about ensuring that the UK has the, the eco- an economy which in the words, uh, the great words of the Labour Manifesto, you know, works for the many, not the few. And that means an economy which delivers high skill, mm. high productivity and high wage jobs which are accessible for all. So if we start that's we start from the if we start from the position that we need that's the sort of economy we want to create. Mm-hmm. How do we go about doing that? And our yeah, our approach is really reflects the work of a of an economist which I'm going to recommend to you called Mariana Mazzucato, yeah. the leading innovation economist, that says that you know in order to you know shape the economy, which is what a government should be doing, because we have duty, you know, so you know yes. in order to shape the economy, you need to set out big sort of missions, because that brings together the private and the public sector, brings together, you know, unions and in, in, in groups, and you can see what you're trying to achieve, and then you put in place the policies to help support those missions. Mm. So we have, we've announced two missions. One is to deliver a 60% reduction, decarbonisation in energy production in the UK by 2030. Wow. You know, and a carbon neutral economy by 2050, which is, you know, these are both really a carbon neutral economy, just think about that, which, which still has, a, you know, you know strength, manufacturing strengths. And the other is to deliver an innovation nation. That means, you know, in a country where we spend much more on research and development. So right now it's 1.8% of GDP. The average for the OECD is 2.4%. Yeah. We are, that's what the Tories are, say they're going for. We're going for 3% because we believe we should be world leading. But also because innovation isn't just something that happens in high tech areas. Yeah. This is that the specific thing is also we will have the greatest proportion of high skilled jobs in the OECD. And you know, those high skilled jobs will be high wage, high productivity jobs. So everyone, and this is really important to me as an engineer, you know, I worked as an engineer yeah. for 20 years before coming to Parliament. Everyone should get the benefits of innovation, and that should be they should be shared by the people, by the workers, yeah. by working people, and that should mean high wages, high productivity, high skills, and a job that means something to you, a job yeah, which yeah. is which you're proud of, which um, you know, which uses all your sort of capabilities. And and there's a real grab. I mean, I've been looking at some of these as well because we're doing a, a report on the future of collective voice. Right. And yes. So I was looking at like the res- you know research, not enough skills we're not investing enough in skills and all of those all of those sorts of things yes like my thing in my head is okay if you say we're going towards an hourglass economy right yeah. to what extent that is true is debatable it's, but a, it's a choice it's a choice it's a political choice it's a political choice, choice yes. and 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 actually mm. with also within that there is well it well, who determines what is high and what is low skilled and also, how do you ensure that if you do start in low skilled, that you have a pathway to get to the high skilled? You that, know, you. Yeah, that's an yeah. absolutely key fundamental question, and that is why the absence of of, of the collective voice or union you know, unions mm. from the government's industrial strategy was such a huge gap because the research tells us, and there's you know there's great research I've seen in this, particularly in the US, that the, the greatest sort of indicator of social mobility in work is trade unionism, yeah. you know, is, is organisation and unionism. And so yeah. that is, you know, you're absolutely right. We have to have 
pathways for, to skills at every point in your life. Yeah. But whilst you're sort of you're in the in the of working age, the collective voice unions are you know union learn union training. Yeah. That is how you access you move up the it's, skills it's curve. It's key to it all. Yeah. yeah. How, how, how though do you think we can win the argument that argument that you can't have? really an effective industrial strategy with, with all the good things that you've just described that, that doesn't promote or, or engage effectively with co- a collective voice for, you know, I, for, I mean, for I, those who work in it. <laughs> you know, I, so I, uh, I admit to feeling that that is a, that sort of an, an argument that is so obvious that, mm. it, you know, we, it, it's, it's a, if you like, and I hate to sort of use political terms, it's because, but it's because, you know, the, the ideological debate has been so framed in the terms of, the, of the, the right wing and the free market and the, you know, neoliberal, that we even consider that an argument because who's, who's doing the work? Yeah, you know yeah. who's, who's going, the money? Yeah. who's yeah. doing the work? Who's doing the yeah. work that creates the value that makes the money? Yeah, and how do we get you know more productivity, more work, more value? Well, you know we have to engage with those who are doing the work, and that you know the way to do that that engagement is clearly through the collective voice. And you know I know just again you know someone who worked in industry for twenty years. Good companies recognise that their productivity, their competitive advantage, all that comes from the people doing the work, mm. and that they have to have a say. Because unless people are, unless people feel, you know, it's called a sense of agency or whatever, yeah. you know, and I don't want a sense of agency. I want real agency. Unless mm. people have that, they are not going to be, you're not going to be productive. They're not going to be committed, and we're not going to be having, you know, the kind of economy that we need. And huh. the areas that we have growth in, uh, that we have growth in terms of the labour market recently have all been in low productivity areas, and they have all been areas where you do not see hardly any collective voice whatsoever. Uh, that is a, that's absolutely um, yeah, because you know it's absolutely true, and it's like the, the nature of work is changing. This technology is changing. The nature of work is changing. The sort of if you like the regulatory and the legislative framework, you know, under the Tories has has changed to undermine workers' rights, and all that is pushing us towards you know that unfair if you like hourglass economy and so one of the key things again a difference between our industrial strategy and the Tories is that we say it's not just about the high tech sectors you know Mm. what we want what we want for example the construction sector the retail sector the Mm. care sector where most people are employed they should be benefiting from uh, investment in innovation and they should be the the source of high wage high productivity high skilled jobs and and uh, this kind of goes back to some of the things that i can get really get on my high horse about is who does determine what is high and low skilled anyway because i kind of think that for example the care sector which was sort of barely mentioned in the it's a massive it's a massive uh, sector in the uk economy and in order to do that job well there is a huge amount of skills though, and yet yeah. somehow people just see it as a really low skilled well, job I mean, you talk about your hobby horse, the care sector (laughs) is one of mine, because if ever you saw a sector that was high value, high utility, high high skill, and and chronically underfunded to the point point of, of kind of... Industrial starvation. Yeah, yeah. it's that, it's the case. That's so true. And that we, I held a, a, a industrial strategy uh, conference in the northeast last November with Unison Northeast. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of focusing on the implication that what a good industrial strategy meant for the care sector. And Barbara Keely, our shadow secretary of state for um, cabinet minister for for care, was there and, and spoke really, really sort of movingly about some of the ways.
ways in which the care sector is underfunded. You know, like the, mm-hmm. the skills budget for the care sector is like minuscule. There isn't yeah. one and effectively. And what we want to move away, and this is again is about our labour values, is move away from thinking of care as like a cost centre. Yeah. You know, like it's something that you pay for. You know, it's a low-skilled cost centre that the state pays for. To really, it's an enabler of the kind of economy that we want. An economy mm-hmm. that cares mm-hmm. for you. An economy that allows everybody to contribute. And an economy that sees, you know, care as a high-skill, high-value mm. part of it. Well, it's economic illiteracy to see it as anything other, because quite apart from... <laughs> quite, well, is that well, like, well I think there's some economically <laughs> illiterate people in government. Because actually, if care is effective, then the, the receivers of the care don't impose a burden in any other way on other parts of the state. Well, it's so, also about and they're enabled to contribute often Absolutely. as well. And I was, well, yeah. I was just going to go say, and then it goes back to, and who who historically has taken that burden? Women yes. have taken that burden of both being the carers, paid and unpaid. And there is a whole, there's a value as well to then allowing uh, people to be part of the labour market yeah. if some of that can be done and also speaking from a personal experience you know like my granddad needs care we have literally got to the point with him where none of us are skilled enough to do that and you want him to have good high quality, good quality care, care. Yes, you know? yes for people who are valued and you know it's a historical anomaly which I find really it would be funny if it wasn't so so tragic in a way but Adam Smith who mm-hmm. and you know the, yeah. the, the, the founder of economy, economics who defined what work was and defined it in such a way that it excluded care because it wasn't work isn't something you know that that you can consume he lived with his mum all his life and and she did all the care for him so maybe that's why well there you go go, you know know, are we going to overturn those assumptions that's my new fact for the day that's a good good one that's a good one but if if we're going to if we're talking about if we're talking about a collective voice being part and parcel of what makes an effective in- industrial strategy. Yes. And we're talking about, uh, clearly there's, there's a, a, a series of political choices that will either encourage that or, 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 constri- or, Absolutely. or constrict that. Yes. But have you got a view about where the kind of dividing line is? Or, you know, what's, what is it appropriate for the state to do? And what actually do workers, given a, a level playing field, have to do for themselves? Workers and their unions yeah. have to do for yeah. themselves? Yeah, no, so that's a really good question. And I think that sort of, you know, you know that, that line, if you like, shifts with, with, with time and with structures and organisation. And that's, you know, that's what uh, Laura Pidcock, our shadow minister uh, for Labour, is specifically looking at. And we're working to, together on the implications for the industrial strategy and for Labour so, so that we're joined up. But, you know, I, I can tell you, as we announced mm. in our manifesto, that we, we want to see, uh, we will introduce a ministry of Labour. And you know, the, the idea, you know, Every country in the European Union, apart from uh, apart from the UK, has a Ministry of Labour. The, you know, the US, you know, that uh, bastion of free markets, has a Ministry of Labour. The fact that we don't have a Ministry of Labour is, a, is, I think, a hangover from the Thatcherite um, neoliberalism. And we need a Ministry of Labour to sort of to set out what you're talking about. To you know, to to set out what the the legislative framework 
what the state needs to do to ensure that the workforce you know that we have now and particularly actually the, the workforce that we need in the future is both is sort of created and protected and enabled and that's why you know and, and the sort of the details of exactly what the Ministry of Labour will, will do or something again that you know that, that Laura is working through and consulting with unions and others uh, right now but for example it will enable a greater uh, collective voice and particularly through you know sector specific collective bargaining as well as establishing rights and support and skills etc yeah i think this has been one of the things um it's another podcast where i mentioned sweden <laughs> so i'm low-key obsessed since we uh this is an explainer for g i'm low-key obsessed after we went last year to sweden and we oh got, right yes and, yes and we, right. we went over and, and talked to their unions about uh, one of their unions put on 250,000 members over four years and we were all like, oh my God, how did you do that? And they went like, we just went and started talking to people. <laughs> oh, that's really good. Where, do, um, where did they go to talk, talk to people? Uh, well, they are Unionen, so they are private sector, white collar, it's private sector, white collar union. Right. Yeah. And they basically just uh, used the structures that they have. Well, I think that's a really important point because I mean, I mean, I was just just talking to a, um, you know an American um, uh, trade unionist, you know, talking about Amazon, you know, and yeah. the way Amazon, you know, the way Amazon built their fortress warehouses that the unions just you know can't just go and talk to yeah. talk to them, even though they you know they're, they're in great need of organisation and protection. So I think you have to have the legislative framework there that gives so rights is, of access. Yeah, et yeah. So this is the interesting thing that we've been sort of unpicking with our Swedish colleagues because. They've got this. They've got a similar framework to the Dutch, but they're in a different position, I would say, from our Dutch colleagues. So they have three pieces of legislation which covers all of the workplace kind of access and collective agreements, right. and then everything is done at a sectoral level in agreements with the employers' organisations. Right. And that it was really, it's really interesting to hear them talk about. The, there's a view amongst the trade unionists and the employer side that if government has to legislate, they they haven't done their jobs properly. Which so we've been well, having this really interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're like, oh, interesting. Mm. It's different, you know. Like so, we've been having this kind of discussion. At our side is like you know that that role of enabling and culture setting, mm-hmm. as well as the legis- you know what, yeah. what role yes. does legislation kind of play in doing that, and you know. As they've said, you're not going to get to the point where we are overnight because where we have fairly good access, where we can kind of negotiate, where employers, you know, they go to employers and say, this is the collective agreement, you need to sign up to it, and all that kind of stuff, because it's been 80 years in the making for them. Mm -hmm, And it's mm -hmm. another thing that's kind of struck me, which is that we've spent the last 40 years kind of dismantling the kind of the mechanisms that we've got and it's going to take such a a long bit of work for us to kind of build those back up and maybe Mm. the point of the sort of shoot of green in all of this is we've gone from not wanting to talk about industrial strategy to at least saying those words together. (laughs) 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 Maybe the next step is actually kind of getting it getting it done and then everything that kind of comes comes from that. Well I think I mean I think 
Yeah. So we welcome the, the sort of the progress, if you like. You know, <laughs> certainly too little, too late, because in, in, in particularly because their industrial strategy doesn't actually have any sort of I would say funding for some of the the, mm. the, the infrastructure, yeah. both yeah. the physical yeah. infrastructure like roads, you know, but also some of the cultural yeah. uh, infrastructure, such as union union rights, and and also I think it's really important, you know, more support for management, and we yeah. have some of the you yeah. know we have you know at yeah. least some support and training for management and in the value of uh, both industrial strategy but also the collective voice and engagement with um, mm. with unions and the, being a partnership which I think is much more what it's seen like in and in, you know in Sweden and, and other countries as opposed to being so confrontational so we we certainly need to uh, set the framework yeah. and there are also as you say sort of rights which have either been taken away or which need to re- reflect the, the changes in the structure of work and the changes in technology yeah. so whilst access to the workplace is really important when it comes to like you know those, those poor amazon workers in this yeah. fortress yeah it, yeah the structure of work in businesses is, in, is changing we have so many small businesses yeah. now we have so yeah. many yes, self-employed indeed. yeah you know, how do we you know the, the, how do we organize those who have the just you know huge need for rights and protections as well yeah and how do we enable uh, unions to access and organize them so to you i mean we've spoken a lot about your your role as the shadow minister of state with responsibility for industrial mm-hmm. strategy but of course you're also involved in the all-party parliamentary group for diversity and inclusion in in stem yes absolutely. And, and, and i want which is unfair question <laughs> flag warning incoming unfair question yeah. which, which is the greater challenge <laughs> well let me tell you uh, that you can't separate them. And that is something, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about diversity and inclusion in STEM. You know, having spent 20, you know, yeah. generally quite lonely years as, you know, female, black, working class, northern engineer, not many of them. Um, you know, I, it was one, of, and, and the figures for women particularly haven't moved over that, haven't improved yeah. over the time. It was one of the things that I sort of determined to try to try and change, and that's why I'm, you know, I'm the chair of the all-party parliamentary group for diversity and inclusion in STEM. But as Shadow Minister for Industrial Strategy, you know, and the skills gap that we have, and seeing you know diversity not as a nice to have, not even as an issue of social justice, but as an economic imperative. Yeah. I mean, almost doesn't matter which sector you go mm-hmm. into. There's a skills, there's a skills gap, and if we, you know, particularly engineering, for example. If we had gender balance in engineering, we wouldn't have a skills gap, you know. And, you know, equally, and I just, you know, I I regularly raise this, the gender pay gap is a consequence of the fact that, part of it is a consequence of the fact that engineering and science are well paid and dominated by men, and care is badly paid and dominated by women. Just a coincidence, (laughs) surely. You know, and we have to address those sort of structural issues in those sectors if we're to have an, an economy which is which is more gender balanced which also makes it more resilient and gender so there's gender there's ethnicity and you know, disability you know, all those different perspectives being a part of every sector make it more resilient yeah. and therefore more productive and more you know in, in, in stronger and more competitive and so mm-hmm. absolutely diversity industrial strategy is about diversity as well and diversity is about industrial strategy oh I like that but <laughs> <laughs> That seems a good place on which to to pause.
Thank you. Thank you so much for spending time, <laughs> time yeah, with us. In what Dave. is a really busy time, we really appreciate <laughs> it. Oh, thank you. It's been good. It's been great to talk and to talk about something as important as the. Well, listeners, I think you all agree that was that was very clear, uh, very different, and does reinforce the point that that the whole notion of industrial strategy is one that is is kind of like far more kind of polarized and controversial than than, than it really should be. Well, yeah, I, I think it's really weird that we that the industrial strategy is not such a big feature of the kind of it, within the public discourse of of the world of work when lots of other countries have it and are successful at having it. And I often wonder, like, why is that the case? Is it because it's not seen as flexible enough or entrepreneurial enough? Is it not seen as enabling enough? But actually, I think the arguments against collective voice are fairly similar to the arguments against industrial strategy, which is that people sort of feel like they don't want to be confined to a system and inherently they don't see the benefit of or they don't think they know the benefit of that system, if they know about it at all. But I mean, collective voice... As part of workers feeling that they have a voice, that they can articulate their concerns, that those concerns are listened to, there's a link between that and higher levels of productivity. And this is a thing, right? So when we we know that all of the kind of key markers around good, quote unquote, good labour markets, there is a feature of collective voice in that. There's a feature of planning, which it comes to that. So it, it just seems bizarre to me that that we have shied away for so long, I think, because we've been basically saying, you know, let markets do whatever ever they want. The problem is, I think we have, going back to that Kelly Tolhurst article, I think we've got to this point in our economy, in our society, where we have such large upheavals that need to be managed or that need to be, I don't know what really the correct word is, like processed. We can't do it on a piecemeal by piecemeal basis we're going to have to train people up we're going to have to make sure they've got the right kind of skills for the sort of jobs whatever that job is and so therefore we are going to need some form of strategy to deal with that and the other thing within all of this is that all, all sectors need industrial strategy not just the high tech high end high value ones it, it's going to be every sector is going to need it. And, you know, that that's a really important, important thing. We're going to need to come together and work out how we're going to work as a society. And industrial strategy is part of that. So I'm also really excited that we'll be talking to Andy Haldane soon about his role as the chair of the Industrial Strategy Council. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I mean, everything we've heard so far, everything we've talked about today really sets up that that discussion really really nicely that's going to be a fascinating discussion no pressure andy <laughs> just uh, <laughs> you know so yes and that will be coming your way listeners uh, in the second half of may but before that or during that becky we have our own annual conference how are, how are things going in terms of good for conference it, the conference is going really well i'm really excited by the roster of speakers that we've got we're going to be launching our initial report uh, on collective bargaining in the 21st century with some thoughts around what that should look like. 
Um, we're going to be talking to unions around digital transformation and what that looks like and how they can do that. And we're really pleased to have speakers from across unions talking about their experience of digital transformation, as well as some non-union speakers. We've got a session on health sector organising and effective health sector organising. We have uh, the RCM looking at some of the things that they've done within that. And also a colleague of ours from who is currently at the FMV, which is the Dutch TUC, talking about her experience of organising private healthcare workers over in the States. We have a section on culture change in unions and change in unions. We've got Dean Rogers, who's the AGS for NAPO, talking about their change process at NAPO, as well as Betsy Dilner from the Social Change Agency, talking about what does productive change look like in a non-profit? Wow, I'm, I'm exhausted. Yeah. Uh, then we're talking about uh, some private sector successes. So Paul Day will be talk going through the PDAU and Boots case. So if you really liked Paul's podcast, everyone, come and meet him in the flesh. As well as the Betsy sector will be talking through their theatre diversity plan, which was is, is really interesting. And then lastly, we're grappling with the idea of the future of work and what should be the union response. Wow. So you can see, uh, listeners, you, you get an awful lot for the price of your ticket, uh, which... <laughs> Which is, which head, is, over, which, head over to the website unions21.org.uk. There is a nice little button there which you can go and get your tickets to. It's on the 21st of May. We start at 9.30. We're just for the day. Uh, come along and I kind of see it as continuing professional development for union officers or union activists who are interested to hear like, what, what's going on in the world of work and the world of unions. We hope very much to, to see you there. And tickets are available at a smidge over £40, I think, aren't they, for the early bird rate, which ends when? End of the month. Right. So, so if you're listening... Come 1st of May, you'll be paying full whack for your ticket. Get your tickets now while they're still available. That's about it for from us for this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We're delighted to have your company. We're delighted to receive your comments. We're delighted to receive your suggestions. Uh, you can email your thoughts about where we should go next with this groundbreaking podcast at info at unions21.org.uk. You can tweet us at unions21. You can download, share, subscribe, do all of the other usual stuff. Thanks ever so much to people who have been submitting ideas for interviews and case studies for the, for the podcast. We've had loads of really interesting suggestions, so we'll be getting ploughing through that and getting back to people to sort out our series in the next year that's great we'll be back in a couple of weeks when our special guest will be brendan barber formerly general secretary of the tuc now the chair of acas the advisory and conciliation service it's a, a discussion you won't want to miss in which we look at the role of acas in this changing world of work but until then it's uh, goodbye it's from me your company and, and goodbye from me <laughs>